Good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to be with you on this Palm Sunday as we really begin preparing to celebrate resurrection this coming week. As we prepare for that, we find ourselves in Matthew 21. And we'll be reading Matthew 21, 1 through 11. As a father of two young kids, and many of you can, can relate to this, I am subjected oftentimes to movies and television shows that are just bad. And I don't mean from like a theological standpoint, that's kind of a given. I mean they're just objectively terrible. Uh, they're not cleverly written. The jokes are, are clearly written purely for five-year-olds. A lot of plot holes, really bad acting. Overall, just uh, pretty awful entertainment, at least from an adult's point of view. But thankfully, thankfully there are those exceptions. Those television shows, those movies that go above and beyond your initial expectation. And as a parent, I have the pleasure at times to watch these things and realize, wow, there's, there's a certain brilliance behind this. This is clearly not just written for little kids, but it's written in a way that can be interpreted and appreciated at varying levels. You no doubt, as parents, perhaps have some of those examples, those shows, those movies that you don't mind sitting down and watching. Um, some of my own favorite when it comes to movies have, have generally been Pixar films, and one of them that sticks out to me as an example of this is Inside Out, a movie that came out a number of years ago. I don't know how you feel about that movie, but I enjoy it. The movie tells the story of a little girl named Riley who moves across country with her family and has to go through the various challenges of changing schools and changing friends and, and just the changes that come with getting older. And it's written and designed in such a way that it's clearly entertained for kids as it's primarily told from these personified feelings that live inside Riley, things that, that clearly are supposed to entertain kids. As such, you know, five, six, seven-year-olds and above can watch this and laugh enjoy certain jokes that are pretty obvious, pretty, pretty easy for them to understand. They're entertained by the beauty of the animation, and they can watch this and believe this is a kid's movie. And as such, they can enjoy it. But having said that, you can park a 25-year-old in front of the same movie, and they too, I think, can properly appreciate this movie. And they can appreciate it for very different reasons. For as they watch that, they can perhaps pick up a little bit more on the theories that are behind the movie and they can perhaps be reminded of, of changes they went through as kids, and they can think back on moves they've made, and therefore the entertainment comes from a slightly different place. They can appreciate it on a, a bit deeper level, and as such, they can watch this and enjoy it. And even more so, you get older than that, and you say, hypothetically, a 39-year-old man can watch this movie. It's all for hypothetical purposes, of course. And as that 39-year-old man watches it, he too can find humor in the jokes. He too can, can see the beauty in the animation, but at a level that maybe little kids can't appreciate and even that 20-year-old can't appreciate, he can be emotionally moved by this surprisingly sad Pixar film. For as a 39-year-old man watches it, particularly a 39-year-old man of two young kids, he doesn't necessarily see and hear the jokes, he sees the plot line of a changing relationship between a young girl and her dad, and he can unexpectedly find himself tearing up as he watches this movie about the challenges, not just of, of you growing up, but the challenges your kids face, the challenges of, of having those relationships change with your precious little girl. And as such, that 39-year-old man, we'll call him Ben for the sake of, of hypothetical, <laughs> he can find himself watching something that, that clearly goes well beyond a children's film. For he can find it as a movie that that really speaks to just far deeper and more challenging issues. And thus, if you were to tell that individual that you don't like that movie because it's a kid's movie and you don't like kid's movie, well, the response is, I don't think you've really seen it. I don't think you've appreciated it at its full level. You really need to take a look back at it and appreciate just the depth of the humor there, the, the depth of the plot line as it plays out. It's only when you come to it from those various experiences and with like that full appreciation, I think, of what's being told, that you can walk away with a proper level of understanding of what the creators of that movie were intending to accomplish, what the story was that was being told. I use that all as an example because as we come to a story like Matthew 21, we come to a story that at first glance can seem relatively simple and straightforward. In fact, it's a story many, if not all of us, have heard before. As such, it's a story that we can read and quickly get past because, well, for most of us, we know it's all just a setup for something else greater that's coming. It's, it's a setup for Easter. 
But what I want us to see this morning, that as we come to Matthew 21, we see a story that actually has far more than what initially meets the eye. We see events that, as they unfold, challenge every observer, every listener. For it's a story that, that tells these events that at first glance can, can seemingly be understood by even the simplest of children, by a casual observer. But as that casual observer takes a bit closer of a look, they, they start saying, well, there's something even more here. There's something more about this Jesus figure than maybe an initial Roman observer would have understood. There's something that, that only the Jewish audience could really appreciate. And even beyond that, as we'll see, as we take an even closer look, we see there's even more beneath that surface. Something that goes beyond what anyone and everyone outside of Christ understood at the moment of the story. Something that Jesus and Jesus alone appreciated, but something that all of us in here this morning need to appreciate. Not just for the sake of understanding Matthew 21, but understanding all the events that unfold afterwards. Brothers and sisters, if we're to appreciate the story of the resurrection as we'll celebrate this coming week, we need to begin here. We need to appreciate this story first. For it's here that we understand Jesus and all of his nuances, Jesus and the way he intended to present himself. And we see it here in Matthew 21, 1 through 11. As we look at it this morning, we'll be looking at it from really three different vantage points. And my hope is that we walk away with a fuller appreciation of it. But before we do, let us begin by asking God's blessing to be upon our time. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the beautiful words of worship we were able to sing to you. We thank you for the joy that comes in singing brothers and sisters in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for just the respite this type of morning provides for us. God, we look around at the world that we live in and we see just how desperately needed that that respite is. God, how how troubling this world is. God, we do not know the level of struggle that is represented in this sanctuary this morning, but I trust that many here today come here worn out, exhausted by the difficulties of life. And for all of us, God, I pray that as we look at the text this morning, we might walk away with, a, with an enriched, more full appreciation of, of who you are, of who your son is, and what he came to accomplish, God. As we observe this text this morning, might we not observe it casually, but might we dig into it, seeing just the richness, the treasure that lays beneath the surface. As always, our prayer is for the unbeliever. Might they see Jesus in a new light this morning? Might they appreciate him in a different way this morning for the first time? And might they see in this passage, God, reflection of the gospel? And we pray they believe that gospel today. From our brothers and sisters in Christ, might it come as a great encouragement, might it come a reminder as why we celebrate next week, why we're able to celebrate the resurrection, and a reminder of how we ought to respond daily. God, remove all distractions from our minds at this moment, cause us to be entirely focused upon you, entirely focused upon your word, God. Be pleased by how we use our time this morning, we pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. As we begin looking at this story this morning, we begin with the most simplistic, casual observance of this text. And as such, we look here first to the story that tells the entrance of a religious pilgrim. Follow along with me as we read these basic details. Matthew 21, verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem... And had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed him and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. He sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of God. 
as we take this first glance at it, we first just look to see these, these basic details, to, to get a basic lay of the land and understand how just a casual observer would appreciate and, and see these events unfold. You can imagine it's a Roman citizen observing this story. The event that really brings all this about, that they're observing, is of course preparation for the Passover. The Passover, that ancient religious festival that caused many Jews from all over to come down to Jerusalem to to make that important pilgrimage to that holiest of cities to them, where they would sacrifice a lamb and where they would remember that nationally defining event. That event, of course, being the original Passover or the story of the Exodus. It's a story that we understand just in passing as a mere historical account, but to these Israelites, these Jewish people, this event again defined who they were. The Passover was this precious time of memorializing that event. There are countless references to that Passover and to the Exodus throughout the Old Testament. But in particular, you can see commands for the Passover being found as far back as Exodus chapter 12. For Exodus chapter 12, we see this command about the Passover celebration. In verse 23 through 27, we read this, For the Lord will pass through, to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord gave you, as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshipped. Here you see the brief summary of what occurred at that first Passover. It's a story we don't have time to to revisit entirely this morning and so if you're unfamiliar I encourage you to, to go back and read Exodus for you see this miraculous event that God uses to deliver his Hebrew people out of slavery out of Egypt, and ultimately through the wilderness and into the promised land. From that moment forward, the Passover was to be this annual celebration to remind the people of Israel who they are, who their God is, and what God had done for them, and perhaps just as much what God still promises to do. To celebrate that again, thousands and thousands of pilgrims would have come into Jerusalem this time of year. It has been said that the population of Jerusalem, which would have been around 40,000 typically, would be multiplied um, by, by up to six times that amount. And as such, you can imagine just the, the excitement of your average Jewish man, woman, child going to celebrate it. At the same time, you can imagine the tension growing for those in authority observing this pilgrimage. For if you're a Roman authority, you of course know why they're celebrating it. And if you were to ask, hey, why are these thousands of Jews coming in? And you're told, oh, they're celebrating that time that their God delivered them out of Egypt when he killed all the Egyptians and led them to freedom. Well, that's probably going to make you a little nervous as a Roman authority. But just as much so, when it comes to the Jewish authorities, they too understood just how much tension was on the rise because of what this Passover celebration represented and how it would speak to the deep, unending frustration these Jewish, these Jewish people had towards their Roman oppressors. So as you were watching this as a casual observer, you would see these countless pilgrims coming into the city to celebrate just as they always do. Yet in the midst of those pilgrims, you would also no doubt acknowledge this one particular religious pilgrim entering, one upon whom all the people's attention seems to be set. One who is riding in on this donkey and one who is being greeted with pretty significant words of praise as he's being called a, a son of David and, and as he's being welcomed in with coats and palm branches on the ground. His appearance no doubt would be somewhat confusing to a casual observer. Yet even for the individual that knows nothing of the background of these events, the response would be undeniable. For it's a response of extreme excitement. Extreme anticipation. You see that marked both by the the crowds that are going with Jesus, that is, as they enter in Jerusalem, but also the crowds that are there already. For as the individuals already in population, already there in Jerusalem, see all this praise, of course, their response is quite reasonable. For in verse 10, 
We read again when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? What's happening? Why all the the fervor? Why all this excitement? This is beyond anything we typically would see during Passover. And in simple response, the crowd said, well, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. It seems at this point in time, the story comes to an end. And thus it would be easy for a casual observer to, to perhaps be a bit perplexed by this, but to simply shrug their shoulders and say, okay, well, that's, that's nice. There's an exciting story, but ultimately it's nothing more than that. Here is a picture of some ancient religious uh, tradition, some ancient religious, some ancient religious festival, And here is just a a good reminder of the different interpretations, the different traditions that various religious groups have had throughout the centuries. And to a certain extent, this casual observation is relatively familiar, for this is the observation, this is the response so many people in our culture today have in response to any holiday. If you ask the average individual, the average unbeliever, what Easter is all about, they probably won't be able to give you that much detail. They might mention some bunny rabbits and some eggs, which is really confusing. And they might even be able to say it's a Christian celebration in which they talk about Jesus, but but they speak of it as if they're completely untied from that, as if it's just their celebration, their tradition, but for me it's just more about getting together with my family and friends and, and having a nice afternoon. That is, I would guess, the way most people approach this type of story. It's a moment in time that that holds some excitement, but ultimately for us, it's nothing more than just a family affair, nothing more than just a family tradition. The problem with this interpretation, though, both today as well as to the person reading this story for the first time, is that doesn't really explain any of it, does it? For if it was just a religious tradition, well, we could read countless Uh, 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 countless tales, countless records of of other similar pilgrimages. For again, there was nothing unique about Jews coming into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They did this every year. Uh, There's nothing all that unique, even perhaps about riding on a donkey, as you assume numerous people would do that every year. More than that, as we enter into this particular entrance, we see this, this different level of excitement. And so it is clear that the casual observer, just assuming this is all going according to the typical plan, well, it's clear they're missing something. Because while they view it as just some ancient tradition, well, clearly the Jews that are there see it as something very different. For they are responding in an incredibly excited manner. And thus it seems that these Jewish people in the audience understand and see something that the casual observer does not get. And therefore in order to really appreciate that next level of appreciation, that next level of meaning, we must view this story not through the eyes of the casual observer, although those facts are helpful, but we must push this story a bit further. We must see it not through the eyes of some Roman pagan, but the, through the eyes of those in the, in, in the procession with Jesus, namely, those devout Jews. For as those devout Jews saw what was happening before them, What they were interpreting was far from simply the entrance of a religious pilgrim. They saw this as an entrance of a Jewish ruler, of a king. We see this again if we revisit these details, but revisit them with a bit more Old Testament understanding. Pick up the story with me again, and we'll read verses 4 through 9. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. In order to really appreciate this story, we have to ask, why are the people responding the way they're responding? 
I mean, you and I don't take our coats off and lay them down on the road when we see someone we like. Unless you've been back in the children's wing this morning, you probably haven't seen a lot of palm branches on the ground as you walk around. This, this seems strange. And, and so again, the question is, why are they doing this? What do they see when they see Jesus coming in? When you understand the Old Testament implications, it's again pretty clear that what they see is a victorious king. And they're therefore responding to his entrance in the same way their ancestors would have responded to so many kings like Jesus. This is seen both in Jesus' chosen vessel of transportation as well as when it comes to their response. Considering that first point of Jesus' chosen transportation, again, we are told in verse 2 that Jesus tells his disciples to go to the city and to grab a, a donkey to bring in this beast of burden so that Jesus could ride this animal into Jerusalem. The question, of course, is why would he do this? Who else would have made this choice? There's a number of examples we can point to that would speak to the tradition here. But in particular, you see the same symbol used back in the book of 1 Kings. In the book of 1 Kings, you have a very famous king doing something very similar, that king being King Solomon. If you turn back to 1 Kings, chapters 1 and 2, you, you can see this story play out. From this Old Testament account, you have the end of David's life. David, of course, that most famous of kings in the Old Testament. And as David approaches his death, there is some family drama that is unfolding. Namely, there's, there's division between brothers as to who's going to take over the throne. Who's going to be the new king. Now, we know the end of the story, so we know Solomon comes after David. But it doesn't seem that everyone was content with that plan. For in the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 1, we read of how another son... That is, Adonijah said to himself, I will be king. I'm going to take over now. And this, this attempted coup takes place as Adonijah takes with him a few other brothers. He, he grabs a, a priest with him, a military leader, and they go off and have a sort of secret inauguration, thinking it seems that once David dies, this is it. We've crossed all the boxes off. We've done everything you need to do to become king, so now we just wait. But there's other people that find out about their attempted coup. And, and therefore, they ultimately go to David and they say, David, Solomon's the next guy. You need to do something. We need to make sure this false king is not able to take the throne. So David agrees. And you have the story play out where they, in response, make this great public declaration that Solomon is the anointed king. He's the one that's going to take over. And you see this story Reach really at Zenith there in 1 Kings chapter 1, picking it up in verse 38. There we read this story. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benai the son of Jehoiadai, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! All the people went up after him, and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth shook at their noise. Here you have this great, grand public declaration that Solomon is king. Here you have this great, grand declaration that says, ignore the other so-called priest. Ignore the other so-called military leaders and their so-called king, and look here to Solomon. He's the one that's in control. He's the one that's in charge. He is your king, and he comes to you, people of God, riding on a donkey. In response to Solomon's entrance, we, of course, see the people sing praises and sing songs of great joy. And as such, they clearly are welcoming. Not just a threat to the throne, not just a potential king, but the king. Already victorious, already inaugurated, already in control. Well, it seems as we get back to Matthew that this is the response of the people. That this would explain why they're so excited. Not just because they see him in light of Solomon, but because they understand this is what kings do. And more importantly, this is what the ultimate king was said to, to do. For as Jason read earlier in that famous prophecy out of Zechariah, the people of God were told exactly that, weren't they? In Zechariah chapter 9, 
We read earlier, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. While these details would have clearly been misunderstood by a casual observer, they were very clearly understood by Jews. For they knew that what Jesus was doing was on purpose. They knew there was great symbolic weight to what he was choosing to do, how he was choosing to enter. And it is out of that understanding then that you see them greet him not just as some pilgrim, but as the king, as the long-awaited Messiah who would deliver them from their foes. You see that, that clear declaration and that understanding both in their actions as well as their words. For again, you read in verse 8 of Matthew 21, most of the crowd spread their coats in the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, we find actions and words that make sense only if they view Jesus as the king both in terms of them laying down coats and palm branches, as well as in the words they choose to say. Regarding their actions, that is laying down cloaks, you again can find Old Testament precedent to this. We don't need to turn back there, but you see the story of, of King Joab in 2 Kings 9.13. King Joab, who would be used to, to execute that wicked Jezebel, to run out other enemies of God's people at his inauguration, the people responded by laying coats on the ground to give him this path to walk, to show deference to him, to show their submission to him. The people are doing just that. No doubt also believing Jesus would soon strike down their enemies. Jesus soon would do everything they hoped he would do. In addition to their coats and palm branches, however, you have this additional praise. For as they greet Jesus, they don't just say, hooray, here comes Jesus. They say, Hosanna. To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Every word that is being uttered here is dripping with prophetic significance. It is weighed down by these incredible beliefs that all come through Old Testament language of the Psalms and various prophets. You consider, for instance, this terminology of son of David. Why on earth would they refer to him as the son of David? He is the son of Joseph and Mary, isn't he? Well, people know that. They're speaking some greater truth. That is the idea that the son of David refers not to his birthplace. It refers to him providing the, the fulfillment of the prophecy of God that through the line of David would come the Messiah. You can read that in your own time in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God says, I will establish your throne forever. Through the throne of David, the Messiah will come. Thus, when they say son of David, as we see throughout the Gospel of Matthew, they are saying king, Messiah. Not only that, but the additional language there in verse 9, when they shout, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna the highest, they again aren't just randomly picking quotes out of the Old Testament. No, they're also being strategic. For they are crying out, not just any ordinary prophecy, they are crying out the words of Psalm 118. In fact, if you would turn with me back to Psalm 118, and you can see where they are drawing this language from. From Psalm 118, we see this beautiful psalm speaking of the coming day of the Lord. Speaking of these promises that the people of Israel had been waiting on and hoping on for so very long. In the midst of this glorious psalm, we find this account in Psalm 118, beginning in verse 19. There the psalmist writes, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. 
We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God. I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. As the people look upon Jesus, they see him as the fulfillment of this. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the day when God is finally visiting us. This is the day that God will finally deliver us. And how can it not be? For here he comes in, riding on a donkey. Here he comes, the one who spoke with great authority, who dumbfounded our Sadducees, who dumbfounded the the Pharisees, who proved that he was something different. Here's the man who raised Lazarus from the dead. Here's the man that feeds the sick, who heals the blind. How can this not be the Messiah? And so they respond in kind. They they cry out and praise to him, fully believing this is it. And in case you were still doubting, we of course come to the end of the account in Matthew 21. And when those who are still clearly perplexed as to why they're responding with such excitement, we read in verse 10 and 11, when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee. Now we can read these words today and think, well, he's more than a prophet. But we must understand these are words of praise. We must understand that when these Jewish people are saying this is the prophet, they aren't downplaying the role of Jesus. They're saying this is the prophet. God promised us this in Deuteronomy 18. God promised us this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promises this in Psalm Psalm 118. God promises this in Isaiah. God promises this over and over and over again. And he's the guy. He's going to take over. And it is clear, based off of the level of excitement here and the praises they are heaping upon Jesus, that this understanding is being carried by multitudes of men and women who, when they see Jesus, see an already victorious king. When they see Jesus, they see someone they believe is just about to inaugurate his kingdom. They celebrate because this is a political parade. This is Jesus about to take over as they had hoped. Their praise, their excitement, is so precious. It's so sweet. It seems at first glance to suggest they fully understand what's happening. Yet there's something tragic here, isn't there? For while they have all the right language, while they have the prophets in their back pocket, while they have these prophecies that are spilling out from their mouths in fulfillment, they clearly carry with them still this insufficient, partial understanding of of everything that has been foretold. For while they say Jesus is king, it's clear that, that Jesus just represents the type of king they hope to have. When they speak of his coming kingdom, it's clear that they don't understand what that kingdom means. To see that, we don't necessarily look here to Matthew 21, but you just consider the countless examples that come before this time that all demonstrate a partial understanding of who Jesus is. You don't have to turn back much to see it, just look at Matthew chapter 20. Here in the midst of the pilgrimage, in the midst on their journey to Jerusalem, you have two great examples of this confusion on full display. The first, which comes right after Jesus said he's going to die, comes in this interesting request from the mother of the sons of Zebedee. For in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, we read, The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. What cup are they imagining? What events do they foresee in Jerusalem? Well, it seems they foresee exactly what the people think they're about to see. They assume Jesus is about to take the throne, and so they want some of that power. They assume the kingdom is now, and it means political rule, and they want a piece of that. And it seems then that while they have a a partially true understanding of Jesus, it, it, it falls short. It's insufficient. 
to see yet another tragic example, you look a little further down in Matthew 20. And again, just before they're coming into Jerusalem, we read in verse 29, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing out, cried, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Here again we have such a sad portrait of what these people understood of Jesus. For here they are about to enter into Jerusalem. Here they're about to have the triumphal entry where we know Jesus will eventually die on the cross for our sins. But on his way, these two blind men cry out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And in response, what do the crowds do? Yeah, Jesus, do it. Show these two people mercy. Show what power is. No, they shush them. They say, stop it. You have no part in this kingdom. Now, why would they do this? Why would they look so lovingly towards Jesus with a smile on their face and look so wickedly and scornfully towards these in need? Well, it's because they don't understand what Jesus was there to accomplish. So these two figures are a picture of weakness. They offer nothing to power, nothing of glory. So they have no part in their King Jesus. They have no part in the kingdom they want to establish. And as they scorn them, as they shush them, they again reveal they don't get it. They reveal that the Jesus they praise is is just a placeholder. He's a symbol of power to them. He's not the real Jesus. He's, He's what they hope will fulfill what they interpret to be their greatest need, which is political first and foremost. They want to be freed of the Roman rule. They want power. They want Israel to be retained to her former glory, retained to, uh, returned to her former glory, because they think that's what they need most. And so they therefore assume that's what Jesus comes to accomplish. And as tragic as that is, we of course understand it's not that far off from how so many people speak of Jesus today, both in terms of people who, who claim they believe him, but also so many people that reject him. For some people who profess faith in Christ, as beautiful as it initially sounds, when you hear them speak of Christ more and more, you quickly understand, that's not Jesus you're talking about. You're just talking about wish for for power, wish for financial success. You're just talking about your own glory. That's not Jesus. And yet many people, both within the health and wealth community, but also in any evangelical circle, can prop up this false infomercial Jesus that isn't the gospel, it's not Christ, it's the answer to these basic needs that we have that we assume will make us happy if met. Too many people do this, and in so doing they speak of this insufficient Jesus, but also there are many people who reject Jesus. But as you hear them explain why they reject Jesus, it's clear they're not rejecting Jesus, the Son of God, they're rejecting their mom and dad. They're rebelling against people who have hurt their feelings. And so they'll speak of how cruel Jesus is, how bigoted Jesus is, how how mean-spirited God is. And as you listen to them, it's clear, I don't think you've seen Jesus. You speak with such confidence, with this quasi-intellectualism, but you know nothing of what you speak. And so again, they reject him, but they really don't reject him at all. They just reject their own cultural assumptions. In both cases, the problem is that Jesus is missed. Jesus is left empty. And even as we come back to Matthew 21, we are reminded that 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 doesn't even make sense of this current story. For while the people of Israel assumed that Jesus was there to meet their own political needs, well, it's very clear that Jesus himself wasn't there to do that at all. For as the story comes to an end, we don't see a king, do we? Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Mark... uh, tells us that, that he surveys the temple but then leaves but, but does nothing. And if you're assuming Jesus is about to climb on the throne, well, that all seems very anticlimactic. It seems that Jesus isn't doing what we would hope him to do at all. As we come to that understanding, we're reminded again 
that there's more to the story than we might initially assume, and, and thank God for that. For like the people of Israel, we too can be blinded by our most pressing, most immediate need. And we can forget that that immediate need is not the primary reason why Jesus came. We can get so caught up in in political disputes and family disputes and financial stress that, that we assume these are the things that matter most. If God could just fix these problems, I would be satisfied. But that's not true. In case we are redoubting that, well, certainly the, the headlines of these last couple weeks should help us get there, should it not? If we recognize that our greatest need isn't some new political ruler, far from it. For we live in a nation that just recently was ravaged, yet again, by an act of wickedness where children's lives are taken. That's horrible. And I can only imagine the level of heartache that people feel in that moment. Once again, we watch in the news as as severe weather comes through and lives are taken and people are left to pick up the pieces. And once again, we realize that people's greatest needs aren't just some passing handout. It's not just the passage of a new law. People need complete restoration. People need a new creation. And so if we are looking to Jesus purely for political reasons, well, that Jesus will disappoint us. But for good reason. Because that was not his intent. Now to really see Jesus for who he is and to really understand what this so-called triumphal entry is supposed to communicate, we must look to the story yet again. For as we look at it again, we see that this is not simply the story of some religious pilgrim entering into Jerusalem. Nor is it the story of an already triumphant king that's about to take the throne. No, as we look at it one final time, and look at it through the eyes of Jesus, we see ultimately this is a story about the entrance of a sacrificial lamb. And it's then and only then that all the details come together. To see that, look back with me again at Matthew 21. For the story picks up in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 4, one more time we read. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. To a certain extent, it it seems nothing has changed here. For it's the same event, isn't it? Same Passover tradition. It's the same entrance as Jesus comes in from the east, from the Mount of Olives. And it's the same chosen means of transportation as Jesus says, okay, go, go get this vessel, go get this donkey. I'm going to enter into this way. And if we end there at verse 3, we can assume that those devout Jews had it right. That Jesus was entering as an already triumphant king. Yet to remind us of how short-sighted that is, Matthew provides us this prophecy that was spoken that Jesus was purposely fulfilling. This prophecy, again, out of Zechariah. It's a prophecy that it seems many of the Jews understood, at least on a macro level. They knew about this imagery of a king. They knew about this promise of a Messiah, but they were missing were these essential subtleties to Zechariah's language. They were, mess- they were missing the the subtle nature of this entrance and what Zechariah was ultimately saying and as such what Jesus was ultimately declaring about himself. Again, reading that prophecy in Zechariah, back in Zechariah chapter 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Bold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. While the people understood the imagery of a king, they seemed to misunderstand the meaning of of the colt, the donkey. That meaning which is spoken there in Zechariah. Some of you already know the donkey itself was significant because it symbolized not war, Not not the imagery of a a king coming in about to kill all of his enemies. It symbolizes, it, it, it represents peace. 
It speaks to the idea that, that God comes to bring peace, to cut off the bow of war, to, to end these war horses in their need. And it is all emphasizing this, this picture of a king that is not arrogant, not prideful, not loud, but the king who comes is just and endowed with salvation. He is marked by humility. And it seems that it is that humility that Jesus is, is reminding his people. It is that humility that is most important to understand here in Matthew 21. And it is that humility that Christ himself has already emphasized, isn't it? For time and time again, Jesus has referenced that characteristic to, to describe him. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 famously speaks of that idea where Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly. This is how Jesus describes himself. And throughout his ministry, we see that gentleness. We see that humility on display. We see Jesus defying the expectations of the people by healing the blind, by allowing little children to come to him, by doing things that powerful kings just didn't do. Yet he does it over and over and over again to remind them, I am not the type of king that you are used to seeing. I am not a mere man who has fallen and who desires simply to prove myself great. I am a servant. And Jesus references this time and time again. That humility was clearly already missed by the disciples, by these pilgrims, and yet it's the humility that is essential both to the character of Jesus and, of course, to his mission. And we find here in Matthew 21, just as we find throughout the gospel account, is that it wasn't just the subtleties of, of Zechariah that were missed, it was the subtleties of, of Christ's own mission. For Jesus had said repeatedly, I've come to die. Again, for evidence of that, you don't need to turn back far. Just look at Matthew 20. For in verse 17 we read, As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said, aside by themselves. And on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. I will, I, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. You turn back earlier in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says the same thing. In John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd and speaks about the good shepherd, lays his life down for his sheep. Time and time again, Jesus made his mission clear to his disciples. And that mission was death, crucifixion. That mission was essential because it was only that mission that could fulfill our deepest need, which is salvation, restoration, new creation. It's a mission that the disciples and pilgrims seem to miss. But it's only when we understand that mission that we can properly understand why Jesus comes in the way he does. Why Jesus chooses the donkey. Why Jesus does nothing at the end of the story but go back and then come back the next day in Jerusalem to overturn the tables, to cleanse the temple. And why Jesus ultimately must go to the cross for his brutal execution so that he could then be raised again. He does it all because he understood something that no one else in the story understood. In the sea of 200,000 people, Jesus alone understands he enters not as a victorious king, but as a lamb ready to be slain. Jesus alone understands this isn't so much a triumphal entry as it's a pre-funeral procession. That's what Jesus is there to accomplish. And that is why he enters the way he does. It is why Jesus speaks the way he does. And it is why he will walk through the coming days, the coming week, all leading up to the crucifixion. It is only when we understand that that we can make sense of this story. It's only when we understand that end that we can appreciate the depth of emotions on display here. That we can both celebrate but also mourn that we can appreciate the glory of our Lord because we understand that glory also spoke to his humility, a humility that is perfected not in his entrance in Jerusalem, but in his own death, burial, and resurrection. As we walk away from this then and consider this, it again is essential that we do not make the mistake that so many of these Jews made in that original day. 
It is so essential that we do not walk through this coming week absent-mindedly and then kind of stumble into next weekend forgetting what led to that moment. What we must understand and what we must take time to do is, is take a moment and observe Jesus here riding in on a donkey. And as we do so, we must ask, like the crowds ask in verse 10, who is this? What do you see? Is this some religious pilgrim? No. Is this some already victorious Israeli king? No. So much more than that. No, when we see this individual mounted on a donkey, we see the king, the son of God. We see, as John had proclaimed years before this, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it is because of that that we celebrate. And so as we close today and prepare really to go through this week leading up to Easter, my encouragement to you, first of all, is for unbelievers, is to really re-examine the story, beginning with the triumphal entry, for that matter, beginning with the beginning of Matthew. Read through it, examine the story again. Do not assume that you already understand it for all that it tells, unbeliever. For there's more to the story than you understand. And so examine it, unbeliever. As you do, strive to understand for the first time why Jesus came. Because he comes for you. He comes not as a political ruler. Initially, he will, as he will be king for us. But he comes to die for your sins. So that you can be brought into his kingdom. Unbeliever, my prayer for you is that you might respond in belief and repentance. So you can celebrate not just his entrance, but his resurrection and his eventual return. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that we might take today and this week to revisit this familiar story. For even for us as believers, there's so much more there than we tend to remember. And so let us revisit this story. As we do so, let us revisit and remember our greatest need. Our need, which is not political or financial in nature, but it is spiritual is provided purely by Jesus Christ. And thus, as we remember that, let us actively think through the events of Jesus Christ through this Passion Week. And let us do so in order to be truly prepared to come back next week and celebrate as the people of God only can celebrate. As we prepare to do this, let me close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. Again, there's so much here, God. So much to this story. God, we praise you for the fact that we're able to read it on this side of the resurrection. For truly, had we been there, we too would have been equally confused. For in our own fallen flesh, we assume that the power looks a very specific way. We assume that, that all kings are alike. We too, in our own fallenness, can assume that our greatest need is political, our greatest need is temporary, when in, when in reality, our greatest need is, is the need of new life. And that new life can only come through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so God, we praise you for that, Jesus. We praise you for that. We praise you for the fact that even when no one else understood, that you understood it fully. And yet for the joy set before you, Jesus, you fulfilled your mission. Might we rejoice in that fact this week? Might we come back next week all the more prepared, with all the more, all the greater appreciation of what saves us? Jesus, we praise you. Bless our time as we close now. In your name we pray. Amen.